You have to you have to keep in mind that during this time of America's found uh, forming, you have what's called the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening was the spiritual revival that swept through our land. And who was amazing at this sort of thing? Who could just churn out preachers like crazy, set up revival tents as America was forming? Who didn't have this really structured, lengthy process of forming pastors where you had to go to school for eight years and you really had to be formed and we were really slow out of the gate getting across this country? Who didn't have any of that to worry about? Baptists and Methodists. They set up churches all over this country just like that. I mean, if you were 16 and you had the gift, go start a church. We need another one. And off they go. And us Lutherans are over here going, Oh, you got to learn your systematics in Greek first, son. You know, so we did not get churches formed. And so that's why almost in every little city and every little town throughout this land, you still have a Baptist and Methodist church. It goes back to the Great Awakening. Hello, this is Pastor Keeker. I'm the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Clinton, Missouri. You've stumbled upon, or you intentionally meant, to come to the last class of a 12-week class that I'm currently teaching on, a Lutheran theology of worship. In particular, we're focusing on the gifts of the Lord's Supper, and on this class we're taking a look at the last 200 years of our history regarding the practice of that gift, especially in the American landscape. Thanks for joining us. God bless you, and the Lord be with you always. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. O Lord, we gather today, this Palm Sunday, the, the passion of, of your Son. And we gather to bless his holy name and sing the Hosannas and join the crowd that greeted him on that day in Jerusalem to shouts of praise, blessing you and blessing your name for the blessings that you so freely bestow on us and all creation. But we know why he came. He was the sacrifice to be bound up upon the altar of God, offering his very life as a sacrifice for our sins and our wickedness, our wretchedness, our arrogance and our pride, our disbelief, our anger. Lord, we thank you for him, the one who makes atonement for our sins, and so we praise you and bless you. We give thanks to you, O Lord, for you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Okay. Welcome to the 12th class of a 12-week class 
on a Lutheran theology of worship. Today, we're picking back up where we left last class on the historical analysis um, and looking at the practice of the church on how they celebrated communion and, and what they were saying about communion. And we're going to really just look at the last 200 years or so. And in particular, we're going to focus on our own specific church body. We're going to narrow in just on the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Um, but where we left off last week was in the 1500s, where we saw the reforms that Luther uh, introduced, right? Luther abolishes private masses, because at that time, you're having the Eucharist celebrated up to 50 times a day in the parish, and the priests are being paid to offer these things. No one had to be present. No one needed to eat it. No one needed to drink it. You, as long as it was just being offered, you could stay at home. And at that time, you know, the average Christian was actually receiving communion maybe once a year, maybe twice a year, but it was being celebrated once 50 times 356, Timothy. I don't know, a lot. <laughs> um, and Luther's the one who comes along and he says, no, 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 no. He reverses the change. He reverses the teaching that communion isn't something that we offer up to God. It's not a sacrifice that we offer to him, but it is God's gift to us. And it's, it's gospel. It's him pouring out his love to us. And um, it's not a work of man. It's a work of God. And he abolishes private masses. And he, and, he, and he calls the church back to the biblical practice of the church in Acts chapter 2, celebrating the Eucharist every Lord's Day as a gift from God. And so Luther, he fights for these reforms, right? He champions these reforms. And also he picks up Jan Hus's reforms, that communion should be offered in both kinds. The, the bread and the wine should both be offered to the people. So we fast forward a couple hundred years, and you, you might have read this in your book. Um, we pick up in the 1700s, and what do we see? In the 1700s, we see that, at least in the Lutheran church, communion is taking place weekly. Um, and th that people are receiving communion in both kinds. So Luther's reforms had taken hold. And in the Lutheran church over in Europe and in Germany, that this is happening. Um, but attendance is waning significantly in churches during the 1700s. And this was on page... 128 in your book, 129, where uh, we're told this quote uh, by a Lutheran pastor, Herman Sasa. I think he's actually a pastor in Australia. I might have that wrong. Switzerland? You mean Austria? Is it Austria? Australia is way off. No, no. Herman Sasa. Oh, I'm thinking of Bo Geertz in Sweden. I don't know where Herman Sasa is from. I was mixing him up with Bo Geertz. Anyway, Herman Sasse is a Lutheran theologian. I don't know where he comes from, but he says this. He describes the 18th century, so 1700s, deterioration in Europe as the supper crisis or the dying of the sacrament. He supports his conclusion with specific parish statistics that showed the decline of attendance at the Lord's Supper. For example, one parish in Breslau, Sasse, cites a drop in communion attendance from... 35,930 people communed that year in 1701. By the end of the century, only 9,500 were communing. He noted that this is a drop from 700 communicants every Sunday to only 180 every Sunday, a 75% decrease 
in people receiving communion every week. And so the question is, is what happened in the 1700s that caused attendance in churches to just drop precipitously and, and for people to not want to receive the sacrament? Uh, again, it goes back to the philosophy of the day. What was going on in the 18th century? You had the age of the Enlightenment, which elevated what? Reason. Reason. Yeah. During the Age of Enlightenment, uh, empirical evidence became kind of the, the lens that you saw everything else through. And if you, couldn't, if you couldn't see it under a microscope, if you couldn't empirically prove that it was true, then it wasn't true. Right, And so reason becomes the dominant force of that century. And what's the thing that really strikes against reason? Mystery. Right? And what's the supper? Mystery. And so um, you see reason really wreak havoc on the church. The, the laity are all concerned about, about what makes sense and, and things of the mind. And, and we're an enlightened civilization now. And we don't believe in these mysterious, supernatural things anymore, right? So um, during that time, you see an elevation of the sermon. The sermon becomes the most important part of the service. And what's the sermon about? Reason. Reason. Uh, it's about morality and civic discourse and how you're to live your life and it's challenging the way that you think. Um, that's what the people were craving. What's the sermon not about? <laughs> Faith and, and the supper and the Lord's gifts. There's no room, we get this quote on page 131, that according to the value system of rationalism, the age of enlightenment, holy communion was beneath clear reason. And thus, the sacraments started to lose their meaning. Sermons denigrated into nothing more than educational lectures on morality or civic duty or, get this, science. You look up the sermons of that period and, and see the, the pastors trying their best to explain diseases and pandemics and the science behind all these things. Everything had to be reasonable and educational under rationalism. There's no room for the mystery of the supernatural. So rationalism reduces church membership by nearly 90%. And the only reason why we note that is because when the Lutherans come over to America um, in the 1730s, we come over, we come from that background. Uh, we are, we are, um, that is from, that is the framework from which the Lutheran churches started in our land, the framework of enlightenment and reason. And so when the 13 colonies are started in America, there are nine ordained Lutheran pastors who are serving 21 uh, congregations and then a variety of preaching posts. We don't know how many at the time. Um, and so that's how it starts. Now, over the next 100 years or so, because the LCMS, our church body, forms in the 1840s. Um, so here we have, we have Lutherans come to America. Um, but in the 1840s, there are a group of Lutherans, and I, I know many of you know the history of our, of our church body. But there are some Lutherans in Saxony, Germany. And there was a thing 
that the governing authorities tried to do over in Saxony. It was called the Prussian Union. They passed this Prussian Union, which essentially said, hey, we, we have Lutherans in this area, and we have some Calvinists in this area, and that's not good. We need to both get on the same page, so we're just going to create this unified church, and the things that Lutherans view differently, that Calvinists view, just put away those differences. We're going to have the same worship, we're going to have the same liturgy, and we're going to have one church so everyone can just get along. This is from the governing authorities. And it's, it didn't come right out of the gate saying that. It actually started in this way, and I think this is important for our day and age. The, the pressure started with the schools. So at first, the governing authorities said, you can still preach and worship however you want, and your pastors can preach whatever they want in the pulpit. You're free to do that. But if you have a school, well, then you're going to have to start teaching certain things. You can't, you can't teach that in your schools. Um, we want you to teach this in your schools. And thanks be to God that these Lutherans over in Saxony saw the writing on the wall right there. They didn't even wait for it to get into the church. As soon as it got into their schools, CFW Walther and Martin Stephan and a handful of Lutheran pastors literally uprooted a whole colony of Lutherans, got on ships and moved over to America because they said, hey, we're free to worship how we, how we need to worship in this land. Let's go. And they all just left their homes. Um, take, and they take ships. I mean, like a couple hundred of them come over here and they settle in Perry County, Missouri. And the first thing they do is they build a school. <laughs> it's like, take that, old Saxony government. They, they build a school because they see that the, the, the most important thing that they need is to raise up future church workers to care for their faith. So the very first thing they build is a seminary. The log cabin, it's still there in Perry County, Missouri. Um, and then eventually they travel up the river to St. Louis, and that's where the seminary still is today. Our seminary has been in function for 185 years. It's one of the oldest seminaries in the country. And it's because our forefathers saw that as the most important thing. They come over before they even built their homes. They built a school. Um, and I think the first class had 13 students, right? So they already start forming pastors. Now, <clears throat> by the time, in these 100 years, um, if you read in the book, you know, it essentially, the, the practice of the sacrament, it bobs and weaves, just like it did in all the centuries past. You have some churches celebrating it every week. Some churches are celebrating it every month. Some are celebrating it once a quarter. Um, some, under rationalism, um, start to change the words of Jesus even because these words can't be true anymore under our reason. So you see a lot of weird things going on with the supper. Um, you kind of see it all. And yet there were some uh, Lutherans who hold on to the word and keep teaching. Now, from 1840 to 1950, and this gets to uh, Chuck's question from last week, what happened? Because when, because when Lutherans come over to America, we know they're celebrating it weekly, and then within these hundred years, things are kind of bobbing and weaving. The LCMS has started, and we are told this, that when the LCMS starts, LCMS is formed, the first president of our church body over in this country is a man by the name of CFW Walther. He had four parishes in St. Louis, and, and it was also the president of the seminary. Um, he, we know that at his churches, they celebrated communion every other week. Now, the pastor in Michigan, who he kind of starts to team up with, that pastor was celebrating it every week. 
Um, and so we have a lot of language from CFW Walther and this other pastor, how they're trying to get on the same page. Um, but essentially, the LCMS is celebrating it weekly or every other week, even at the very beginning. But by the 1950s, we have statistics. We started keeping statistics in the 20s. That by the 1950s, the average LCMS Lutheran is receiving communion three times a year. Um, so this was about one time a week, roughly, on average. By the 1950s, we're to three times a year. That's less than once a quarter. So the question is, is what happened here in this, in this century between the 1840s when we were first formed in America and then the 1950s? Um, and that's what this chapter was about. He lays out four main reasons why the, the huge drop. I can summarize it, I think, in three. Why the drop? What happened? Well, the first reason is rationalism. Rationalism was still holding its way. Um, the Lutherans came over to this country in that very framework. And the rationalism that had taken place in the church, in a sense, it had already kind of provided the cracks in the foundation, even when we came over here, right? You build a house and the foundation is not solid it's not gonna stay up very long, right? It's gonna start crumbling at some point. And the cracks in the foundation, the problem was that it was both in the laity who just wanted to come to church to hear educational lectures and morality and civic discourse sorts of things. It was also in the clergy. The clergy were, were even backing away from the word and saw their job as just as to tell you how to live and morality issues and civic discourse. And we started backing away from the miracles of Christ and all things mysterious. Yes, Rachel? Well, St. Paul did some research before they came over. St. Paul was filling the city uh -huh. because it fell on Missouri uh, farmland, the Missouri River farmland, and St. Paul is on a hill. Okay. Good. Now, the second reason, and I think this is the biggest one. I, I, I think this is the biggest one. You might disagree. Um, but the social pressure, the social pressures that Missouri Synod Lutherans um, were under in that century were vast. I mean, the first one is um, during that time, that, in, that, in that time period of, the, of, the, of our of our country kind of coming to formation. This is probably an understatement, but there was a very heavy anti-Catholic sentiment in our land. Suffice it to say, and for a variety of reasons, probably the main one is the Pope claiming authority over land that the Roman church is built on. And you're coming into a country that what our motto is home of the free, right? But yet this this, this group of people, they, they have a pope, and that pope's claiming authority over their land. There was, there was very strong anti-Catholic sentiment in our country. Um, I know that my grandmother, uh, she, she once told me that she wouldn't even talk to someone if they were Catholic, <laughs> right? Like, this was heavy, you know, 100 years ago, 60, 70 years ago even. But um, 
the Lutherans were put in a position of we're coming over to this country and what do people, the, you know, the average American who comes into our church, what do they think when they see our worship? They're a lot like Catholics. These people are Catholic. Yeah. We don't want them to think that we're Catholic. We're not like those papal people. So what's the thing that Catholics always did? Well, they celebrated the Eucharist every week. What's the thing that the average American church was doing? Not that celebrating it once a quarter or so. So what does the Lutheran church do to show that we're not Catholic? Hey, we're not celebrating the Eucharist like them, right? We just have it once every quarter or so too, just like you, right? So the, uh, the social pressure of trying to distinguish that we are not Roman Catholic, we are a different, we're Lutheran, we're a different thing, we're Protestant too. Um, that, that added to the deterioration, but then, <laughs> but then World War II happens, right? So you have anti-Catholic, sentiment so we're trying to separate ourselves from rome and the way that we do that is change our practice then world war ii happens oh yeah world war one too yeah both both world wars make americans suspicious of who germans and when you come into a what david and japanese and the japanese yeah <laughs> when you come into a lutheran church what's the language they're speaking german. german Ooh, not good so you see a church body literally change almost overnight i mean within a period of a few years drop our language we change over to english why because we want to show americans that we are not german right all of our moves are, to sh are under social pressure to show that we're just like you, right? So again, it's, it's, we drop the German tongue, which is just another sign of how quickly Lutherans were at changing their practices in order to fit in with the culture. So World War II causes us to change to English, which is, you know, I think a good thing. Go to a Mennonite church today, it's all in German, right? There are still some connected back to the Lutheran branches that maintain the German tongue. Um, no, it's German. It does sound gibberish to me, though. <laughs> um, and again, you have, to, you have to keep in mind that during this time of America's found, uh, forming, you have what's called the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening was the spiritual revival that swept through our land. And who was amazing at this sort of thing? Who could just churn out preachers like crazy, set up revival tents as America was forming? Who didn't have this really structured, lengthy process of forming pastors where you had to go to school for eight years and you really had to be formed and we were really slow out of the gate getting across this country? Who didn't have any of that to worry about? Baptists and Methodists. They set up churches all over this country just like that. I mean, if you were 16 and you had the gift, go start a church. We need another one. And off they go. And us Lutherans are over here going, oh, you got to learn your systematics in Greek first, son. You know, so we did not get churches formed. And so that's why almost in every little city and every little town throughout this land, you still have a Baptist and Methodist church. It goes back to the Great Awakening. And so when Lutherans finally get steam and we're, we're finding our places in this society, what's the predominant landscape? Still to this day, most are Baptists or Methodists. And so we're going to start adjusting our practices to try to fit in, not be so weird. 
Um, the, the other social pressure that we hit, and this one was a new one to me. I did not realize this. But in the 1940s, 1930s, the Catholic Church was seen as a liberal church body. Um, they were seen as the liberal, progressive church in our land, doing all these weird things, according to the history. And Lutherans, again, wanted to distinguish ourselves that we, we are not liberal. We're not progressive in this way. We are conservative, confessional, traditional, old school sort of people. Um, and one of the ways it, that they distinguish this, again, was the practice of communion. In the 1940s, if you had communion every week, you were seen as a liberal. I don't, I don't know. I can't explain why, why people come up with these sorts of judgments. But that was the case. And so, again, the LCMS, LCMS, we want to show that we're a conservative church body. And what was the way that you show that you're a conservative, body, conservative church body? You didn't wear masks. I'm kidding. You <laughs> kidding. <laughs> kidding. You didn't have communion. That was the way you showed that you were conservative. Again, doesn't make sense to me because I'm of a different generation. Um, I think the generation after us will look back at our silly things and be like, why was that a conservative or liberal thing? You know, it's like, wh whatever. Um, th that was the second main reason. Social pressure, anti-Catholic sentiment, World War II, this conservative liberal lens that our church body was formed in. I mean, why, why, are, our why are our roots conservative? Look at our founding. <laughs> the government overreaching into our schools caused our church to form. So by nature, we're going to be opposed to any sort of government overreach into the faith. Um, <clears throat> the third reason, and did you see this in the book? Lack of pastors. We just didn't have the manpower um, to, to get communion out to all the churches that were starting. The first 50 years of our church body, uh, we grew over a million members. Um, the LCMS, you think of it, all the immigrants from Germany, Europe, coming over into our land who were Lutheran, they found a home right in the LCMS. They found a home right in the Lutheran church. Our, our church was growing leaps and bounds just by immigration. And all those Lutherans needed uh, a place to worship. And so they were forming churches, but we didn't have the manpower yet. Uh, we didn't have the pastors to care for this many people. It wasn't until Pastor Leahy sends over 80 guys from Germany just to help. I mean, we were the kind of the mission focus of the world at that point. Um, someone's got to care for all these Christians over in America. Um, but, you know, this was when we created things like circuit riders. So, you know, you didn't get communion until the circuit rider came around. And w what was that? Maybe once a month he would get there. Um, that was when you got it. And so Lutherans just got in the habit of having communion. And we were more than happy to just have it once a month anyways, right? For all the social pressure reasons. You know, it's like, I'm sure even in that day, if someone was like, hey, guess what? The circuit rider can come around every week next year. Even the lady would be like, ooh, I don't know about that, right? You know, ah, I don't want people to see that we're liberal or something like this. Um, I want to look at page 178. This is CFW Walther's Lament. He says, wherever the divine service once again follows the old evangelical Lutheran agendas or church books, it seems that many raise a great cry that it's Roman Catholic. When the pastor says, the Lord be with you, and the congregation says, and with thy spirit, 
or if the pastor sings the collect and the blessing and the people respond with a sung amen. Even the simplest Christian can respond to this outcry. Prove to me that this chanting is contrary to the word of God, and then I too will call it Roman Catholic and have nothing more to do with it. However, you cannot prove this to me. If you insist upon calling every element in the divine service Roman that has, that has been used by the Roman Catholic Church, then it must follow that the reading of the epistle and the gospel is also Romish. Sing or preach in church, for the Roman Church has done this also. And those who cry out should remember that the Roman Catholic Church possesses every beautiful song of the old Orthodox Church. The chants, the antiphons, the responses, they were brought into the church long before the false teaching of Rome crept in. For more than 1,700 years, Orthodox Christians have joyfully participated in the divine service. So should we today carry on that such joyful participation is Roman Catholic? God prevented. Therefore, we continue to hold and restore our wonderful divine services in places where they have been forgotten. Let us boldly confess that our worship forms do not unite us with the modern sects or the Church of Rome. Rather, they join us to the one holy Christian and apostolic church, that is as old as the world and is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So this is nothing new. Even Walther was, was arguing against it. Now, fast forward to today. Take a look at these things. Are any of these things still an issue for Lutherans when it comes to celebrating the supper? I would argue no. Rationalism is it's, it's not a thing. It's, it's no longer a barrier for people to receive the supper. In fact, uh, if you look at the younger generation, millennials and then the generation after us even, there is this intense um, interest on mystery and the supernatural. And they're seeking that there's more out there than just what I see, right? And that's, um, that's fascinating to see because you know, we, we bring the youth to the national youth gathering. We do all this stuff to try to keep them entertained and try to keep them going. You know, we hype them up with sugar and we do all this stuff. And, and then it always ends with the divine service and the Lord's Supper. And, and we get back from the, the trip and we ask the youth, what's, what's their favorite thing that they did? I really like to take communion with 30,000 people. What about the hamster balls? You know, what about that stuff? No, it's the divine service. I, I, in Georgia, we sent our youth there, youth of 40 people. And, and you know, we're, as pastors, we're always trying to do all these things to keep the youth involved, right? And then we come down and we have this refreshing um, just response to the youth gathering. And that's what, they, that's, that's what they said. Yeah, it was the divine service at the end. Something about that mystery that the youth are really clinging to that I think the church has really sacrificed over the years by trying to cater to, to the whims of man. Um, we keep holding up the mystery. Also, so I don't think rationalism's, I don't think it's steering the ship anymore. I don't think that's steering at least the Lutheran ship anymore. Now we look to the social, pre that, yeah, you David. Got the evolution and all that been taught for years and years. What, I don't like you know, rationalism, but yeah. scientists, you've got to prove everything. Exactly, yeah, no, that's right, right there. Um, social pressures, I, maybe the anti-Catholic stuff is still there for some people, I understand that. But I, I really just don't, with the younger generation, they just don't care. It's, I can't speak for the younger generation, but um, you just don't see that as much, uh, the well, labels. I was, yeah. I was thinking about that. When you mentioned that we didn't want to be weird, Yeah. and I've lived here since eighth grade, so this Clinton is really all I know in this church, and it makes 
maybe it's just this town because of the way it's set up. You have several Baptist church, one really big. You've got a good Methodist church. And I remember going to overnights and retreats with my friends who went to the Baptist church and the Methodist church, but they would never come here. Mm. And I don't know that it was the children, the kids, as much as the parents, because and even now, mm-hmm. when you go to church, I go to Lutheran church. Oh, I still think there's a little bit of that Some, over all the years. I don't, still, I don't find that with uh, mm-hmm. writers' age group. That's good. So it could be it's changing because I'm talking you know thirty. Yeah, yeah. Well, that anti-Catholic sentiment often turns into anti-Lutheran sentiment too, because if you're seen as Catholic, it's like oh, you know, and. And so that is a thing. I do think that that's not steering the ship as much anymore, especially with the younger generation. Um, we just want to be faithful, right? We just want to be faithful. We all just want to be faithful. So if it looks Catholic or it looks Baptist or whatever you think it looks like or you want to label it, it doesn't. It just doesn't matter anymore, right? It's just being faithful to the word, and we're going to stand on that word. And so what what we've seen is if it's, this is the case with with an individual, let alone a church body. What happens to a person? when they stop worrying about the social pressures and what people think of them, and they're just free to be who they are, right? Just be who you are. Well, th- then you really see beauty, right? And the beauty of Lutheranism is we just, we just stand on the word. So if the word makes us weird, fine. We're going to stand on this word. Um, if the word makes you think uh, that that can't be, right? It doesn't uh, make sense. Well, we believe it even when it doesn't make sense. So you see that Lutheranism has finally, I think just in the last 70 years, has kind of shed a lot of these layers of the social pressures. And it is no surprise then, and oh, we have a lot of manpower now. We have like 6,000 ordained clergy in this country and in the International Lutheran Council, there's tens of thousands ordained men around the world. So it's not a problem to have a pastor nearby. Now we're starting to face a shortage again about 10 years ago, but it seems like we've turned the tide again. Um, What has happened? If all of these things are no longer present, it's no surprise that in the last 20 years, we've gone to seeing more and more churches celebrating communion every week. And Pastor Weeding lays that out on page uh, 156, right? Um, That as of 1999, you know, 33, 34% of churches are now celebrating it every week. Um, and it is increasing now in another 20 years. It's over half of churches are celebrating every week. We're returning back to the, to the scriptural witness, and uh, the social pressures aren't influencing our decisions as much anymore. Rachel, I'll get to you. I want to get to practical things. That's a wrap on the history. I want to spend the last 10 minutes talking about practical matters. Um, how to prepare for the supper. Um, things to do in preparation for receiving the supper. Chuck uh, mentioned last week about you know the idea of or Russ had talked about the idea of sitting up front if you're going to receive communion that day um, at the church that he grew up in, and, and Chuck said something to the effect of, "I like that because it shows like intention, like you're intentionally coming that day to receive the supper, and it's that intentionality that I want to that I want to kind of focus on because." Because our whole week uh, should be guiding us to receiving the supper. There shouldn't ever be a Sunday where we come into church and, and we're surprised that the supper is going to be there, right? We should be thinking about it and, and doing things throughout the week to make it um, intentional. So, so some of the things I'm going to give you, you might be like, well, that's weird. 
You know, I don't know about that, Pastor. That's kind of strange. Um, that's fine. Think of the first time you played baseball, right? And like you started to like read or or you get a rule book for something and you read and it's like, why do I put my hand on the bat, the left hand down below and my right hand, like I want to swing it however I want to, right? Or you might think the rules are weird. But then you start playing the game and eventually the, the rules become second nature and you don't have to think about it anymore. And it just it just is and you're enjoying the game, right? For some of you, some of the things I might say might be the first time. It's like, well, I've never heard that before. And it's just like, you know, a t-ball. It's like, I don't, why do that? What's the point? Well, if you want to take anything away from the next 10 minutes, do it for at least a year, right? Because if you go out and swing the bat for once or twice and it doesn't work and it's just like, that was silly. Well, you got to do it for a while. Don't just try it one Sunday or two Sundays. Commit to it for a year. Here's some of the things I'd recommend. Um, and, and I'm not giving you anything that I haven't also incorporated in my own life. And I can tell you honestly that there's never a Sunday that I'm not yearning for the supper. Um, my soul is famished. It's yearning for it. I look forward to receiving the supper every Sunday. Um, I long for it. And throughout the week, there's things that we can do to help prepare our bodies for it. First, the most important thing, the only thing needed to receive the sacrament worthily is faith. Faith. Faith in Jesus' words, that's it. You have faith, come to the table. You're prepared. All these other things are just things that you can't do, right? Luther says fasting and bodily preparation. So the first one is to fast. Jesus says when you fast, he's, he's assuming that you do. When you fast, fast. Um, if you're going to fast, fast for the supper, Right? It's a way of preparing our body for, the, for food. If you, if you think about eating at a restaurant, what do you get, like a steak or something? Um, and you get this huge steak on your plate and, and, and the, all the sides. And then you find out that, that the world's greatest chef who makes the best dessert is there. What are you going to do? You're going to eat less. You're going to save room for that dessert. Well, it's no different than the supper. When we approach the supper, we are eating heavenly food. We're eating, we're eating the bread from heaven, manna. And so, so we are preparing our gut for that. So in the church, uh, a 24-hour fast is custom um, for the supper. And it looks like it's not as hard as it sounds. It looks like this. On Saturday night, you can eat dinner. Eat your, eat, it's from sundown to sundown. So you eat Saturday night. Then Sunday morning when you wake up, don't eat anything. You can have water, you can have coffee, but don't eat anything. The first thing that hits your stomach is Jesus. And then you go home, and then you wait until dinner, and then you eat. That's when you break your fast. That's breakfast. The most important meal of the day is not breakfast, it's Jesus. (laughs) Then when you break the fast, that's when you start. So fasting is good. Prayer, fasting and prayer, prayer. Um, if you have a hymnal at home, there's a daily office for families, and there's colics for each day. And every day, there's a prayer leading you to the supper. <laughs> it's putting it in front of your eyes. It's putting it in front of your soul. It's putting it on your heart that the supper is coming, and, it's, and it, you're having prayers about yearning for the supper, um, making that an intentional part of your prayer life. Uh, it's in the hymnal. You can get the treasury of daily prayer from CPH if you really want to go big. Um, where it gives you, you know, almost 30 minutes of prayers to pray and preparing you. Um, 
Fasting and prayer, these are both ways of slowing the soul down, slowing the flesh down. Um, flesh likes to go fast, the soul likes to go slow. So, you know, why spend 30 minutes reading colics and prayers? Because your, your body needs it to slow down. Other thing is, is to read scripture. Read the scriptures. There is not a page in the Bible that I do not find the Eucharist. Everything you read will point you to the supper. Because the whole Bible is about who? Jesus. And where is he found? In the Word and in the Supper. And so, you know, I was reading Psalm 71 this morning um, in my prayers, and it was talking about, this one hit home with me. It started off with, um, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Uh, Rescue me. Right, and it talks about having gone through all of these um, problems in life. Um, where does he? Where does he rescue us? Where does he comfort us? Where does he hold us close in the supper? Um, the other thing is talking with others. This is a good one. Talk with others about the supper. Um, just making it part of your daily conversation. Um, I've enjoyed doing this with all the nurses at Children's Mercy. And just talking about it with them, it has a way of making me yearn for it too. Like I, I think I told the story, I, I talked to a nurse about the supper one time. She was Baptist and you know, she didn't have any um, sort of sacramental understanding of the Eucharist. And so I, she's like, what do Lutherans believe about communion? So I got to share. And I remember her going, wow, to be encountered by God like that has to be cool. And just that conversation makes me like yearn to be encountered by God like that. Like, yeah, I know. I can't wait for Sunday. Um, I was just meeting with Sandy, Sandy and Mike Huey last week, and and Sandy did this. Sandy was telling me how uh, the the hospice chaplain came by to talk with Mike, and the hospice chaplain was Baptist, right? And Sandy just made it part of the conversation because he was asking, you know, does Mike have a pastor? She said, Oh yes, he has a pastor. Um, and somehow they stumbled onto communion, right? The chaplain wanted to know if, if, if I would bring him communion. And, and Sandy goes, oh, yeah, he'll bring him communion. Our church is... And so he asked how often the church celebrated. And, and Sandy says, well, we're, we're going to start having it every week. It's really important to us. And this conversation opens up. And I guess the, the chaplain said something about communion. And Sandy just says, oh, no, it's the means of grace. It's the, it's the way God comes to us and forgives us. And, the, and she's like, and the chaplain just goes, huh, you know, it's like, good for you, Sandy. Like, that's a great conversation to have, these conversations with others. We have to, we should not be afraid to talk about the supper. Yes, it makes us different as Lutherans, but woe to us if we do not preach the gospel, right? Make it part of the conversation. Talk about it with your friends. The last thing that I want to look at is just the gestures. I know I'm blitzing through these. The gestures, so when we come to the service on Sunday, we've spent the week uh, fasting the night before. We've spent the week praying. We've spent the week engaging in conversations where we can about the Eucharist. Um, And we've spent the week reading the scriptures so that when we come, here's some things that you could consider doing. When the words of Jesus are being spoken, right, the verba, this is my body, this is my blood, uh, that moment in in the upper room on the night of the Passover, it's one event. We are, we are joined with the disciples in that moment. I always think of that, and if I wasn't a pastor, I would go back to my, 
my other practice, which is I would bow my head and close my eyes when the Lord was speaking, right? Because his, he, he is coming to us in this word. And so I want to take a posture of humility and reverence. And I do, not, I do not come back up from my bow until I hear the peace of the Lord be with you always. Just like when he comes through the walls of the upper room and he says to the disciples, peace of the Lord be with you always. Then I, then I rise up and I open my eyes, right? Because it's the word of the Lord that makes us fall and it's the word of the Lord that makes us rise. And so I'm depending on his word. I'm waiting on his word. When he says, this is my body, I do not want to look because I, like the angels who bow their wondering eyes, that mystery is so bright, we sing in, in, in the hymn. So also in this, on this word, I'm, I'm bending my knee or bowing or, or, or keeping my eyes shut until he speaks again. Then when we come out to the, to, the, to, the, um, to the aisle, how would you walk to the Lord on the last day? <laughs> Run? All right, Patty, I want to see it. That's what we're preparing for. We're meeting our Lord right now. So how we walk to him is practice for how we are walking to him on the last day, right? So we run, uh, uh, we run or we come forward in humility and in reverence, right? And uh, this is why in the church, what do you all do? You bow, right, before, before we come up to the altar. I think that's a great practice, showing humility as well. You know, we don't come up shaking our finger, you know, or putting ourselves over Jesus or boasting, but we come humbly before him and we receive Christ. And again, two ways to receive him. Cyril says, place your left hand under your right hand and receive, make a throne to receive your king. That was the practice of the church, uh, receiving him right in your hands. And then Luther had the practice of just going right to his mouth, just doing this motion. Some people then take it and, and, and place the host in their mouth, that's fine. The other way to receive it is directly on your tongue. This was the practice of the, of the church for a thousand years. Um, to receive it on your tongue, you have to open your mouth. Um, don't make me jam Jesus into your mouth. If you want to receive Jesus on the tongue, open your mouth and, I, and, and you receive him. This also is a humble way of receiving him. The one thing that, you know, the one thing that we want to think about is coming up and taking him or grabbing at him, right? We want to receive Jesus. We come receiving him. Um, then, and this is important, return to your seats and spend some moments in silence. Spend some moments in prayer and in silence because Jesus has just entered your body and Jesus always speaks. What's he saying? You give him a chance, right? Go back to the pew and spend some time in reflection and resting in his presence and, and thanking him for him coming to you again and seeing what word comes to your soul. Um, those are precious moments when I commune a sick or shut-in member. Some of the things that people will verbalize during that moment of silence, it, it writes their funeral sermon right there. I mean, I've got like 12 funeral sermons in the works from that moment. <laughs> just the things that they say. It's Christ speaking through them. I mean, Christ is in them, and now they are speaking. It's an incredible moment. So if you don't do that, please do so. That's it. We got to wrap up class because we have a busy day today. Yes, Rachel? All right, let's end with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be.